for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul starts out with saying, you, and you he made alive, in, what, in which once you walked according to the course of this world. Then in verse 3, he brings in all and the others. Paul isn't preparing in these verses to talk about some cult or some group of cannibals on some Pacific island or, um, or some, some subset of people. He's talking about everyone. So when we read these verses, these are not something that just apply to the person you see in Times Square or the person um, with all the metal studs and loops in their face that looked like they fell face first in a toolbox. It's, it's, not, it's not that person down the road that you think of who's drinking himself to death or, or that couple in that one house near you who, who have screaming fights every other evening. They are part of the everyone. But this includes everyone. So in this first section, we have that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. We're looking especially at the first few verses of this chapter. This is the biblical diagnosis of our sinful nature. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. We have three descriptions from Paul here of our state before Christ. First, we are dead. Verse 1, Paul says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. This was our previous state of separation and alienation from God. Paul also mentions it in verse 5 as he marvels at God's salvation and what God has done, even though we were dead in trespasses. Um, you'll notice trespasses and sins in these verses um, as, you, as you dig into how especially Paul uses these terms in his letters, trespasses he, he generally uses um, to describe or to point toward acts of sin. And then he, he often refers to sin or sins um, as a more, a more comprehensive description of our state. Over in Romans chapter 7, in verses 7 and 8, Paul talks about sin working in him, causing him to covet, which is a sinful act or a trespass. Um, and so Paul, Paul is digging into the fact that we are not just people who would commit sinful acts, but we were sinful at a deeper level. We were, we were in a sinful state. Um, he, he, he brings up both trespasses and sins. And um, yeah, sometime... Look at Romans 7, 7 and 8, and just ponder how the, the power of sin was working in him to produce acts of sin. And Paul says, we were dead, committing trespasses in a sinful state. We were living in, a, in, in just a state of sin, and then our actions were, um, were just full of sinful actions. Over in chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, um, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. We were alienated or excluded from the life of God 
That means we were dead. We were cut off from true, eternal, spiritual life, sustained and given by God. This is the exact opposite of what the world tells us about ourselves. Uh, the, the opposite of what society would tell you about yourself. Society would say that we're basically good and that if we just believe in ourselves, we can do anything. That's, sorry, that's not true. And we, we can often become confused or, or, or we can easily become confused by this deadness Paul talks about here because many people do many impressive and even good things, including non-Christians. And so this deadness maybe rings a little, a little false to our experience because we do see people who, who are not redeemed. They're not born again. They're not, uh, they've not given themselves to God, and yet they seem to be doing good things. They seem to be maybe even doing impressive things. While a spiritually dead person may indeed do amazing things, after all, remember we talked last evening some about us being image bearers of, of God. People are created in the image of God, and with bearing that image comes many things, which include creativity, intellect. Um, a spiritually dead person may do some amazing things, but that person can do nothing spiritually because they're not connected to the vine. They don't have a source for, for true life and power and goodness. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is straightforward. Humans face a sad predicament. We are not morally good in ourselves. We're not even neutral. We are in ourselves fallen, filthy, dead. So the first description Paul gives us here, we were dead. And then in verses 2 and getting into verse 3, he says we were disobedient. Paul goes on to describe how we disobeyed God like our first parents, Adam and Eve, did. Instead of following God, he lays out three evil forces we followed. We followed the world, we followed Satan, and we followed our sinful desires. So we followed the world. Paul refers to sins, uh, verse 2, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world. The unregenerate person, the unsaved person, is controlled by the world's influences, by the values of the age they live in, which are and always have been contrary to God's values. Even if you think back to the good old days when things were better than now, the world, the unregenerate mass of humanity, still didn't hold God's values. They have still held selfish values. The unsaved assume the attitudes, the habits, the lifestyles of the culture that they're in. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul gives a description of um, what he says the last days and the perilous times. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, 
Think of those people who do some things that seem pretty good, but denying its power. They're not connected to the vine. From such people turn away. That list Paul gives, that's what, that's what drives the world. Lovers of money, boasters, lovers of themselves, proud. That is the, the underlying force that forces. Those are the underlying forces that move the unsaved through their life. In John's words, in 1 John 2, their lives are marked by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Paul in Galatians 1 says that we need Jesus to rescue us from this present evil age. That's following the world. The unsaved, we before committing our lives to God, that is what we followed. Secondly, in these verses, Paul says, we followed Satan. Paul speaks of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The book of Ephesians speaks more about principalities and power than any other New Testament letter. And it draws attention to the power behind them, Satan. And it, just in this book, in chapter 4 and in chapter 6 especially, um, Paul just really lays out the, uh, the principality and powers, principalities and powers, and, and the force of Satan behind them. In, in the terminology that's used here, we have ruler and prince um, used a lot in the Old Testament, used for national leaders, local leaders, tribal leaders. Uh, in the Gospels, we read about Satan being the ruler of the demons. Uh, we see that in Matthew 9 and 12, Mark 3 and Luke 11. All three of those books refer to Satan as the ruler of the demons. And then in the book of John, uh, in chapter 12, chapter 14, and chapter 16, he's described, Satan is described as the ruler of this world. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, refers to him as the god of this age, lowercase g, of course. Now, I, I have spent sometimes occasionally a little confused by what, it's, what he's talking about when he says the air, um, the prince of the power of the air, one of the ways that could have been translated would be the lower heavens. Um, in the ancient world especially, the lower heavens would have been a, a term or a way that they referred to uh, what they considered the intermediate space between heaven and earth. And, and they would talk about the, the, the air or the, the, the lower heavens where the, where the evil spirits dwelled. And Paul seems to be using terminology that would have, would have resonated with them. But with me, I tended to just kind of, I would read through and skip over it because, well, he's just talking about Satan and I don't need to know what the air means. But he was using a term that, that made sense to them. They, under, they understood there to be, or they, they thought of it, they framed it as um, the air, this, this lower heavens, a, a spiritual realm between the heaven where God lives now and the earth where we where we inhabit. And so he says the ruler of the air here is Satan, the ruler of the, that, that spiritual realm. Um, he's, he's been given, he's been, he's been allowed a, a place of authority. Um, God is sovereign, but he has allowed um, Satan a certain, uh, a certain reign there. 
So the ruler of the air has nothing to do with the breath, the wind, pneumatics, anything like that. But, it, but he's talking about the spiritual realm, um, but still below where God occupies. It's still subservient to the place where God sits. So here we have him referring to the place of activity of Satan. And he says, the spirit now working in the disobedient. That's a good description for us to think about how Satan works on unbelievers. The unbeliever that you rub shoulders with at work, um, out on the street, in your family, um, the unbeliever is not completely possessed by Satan. But they live in the world of darkness where Satan holds sway. He lays out the bait and sinful people take it, disobeying God. And Paul mentions the disobedient, the sons of disobedience again in chapter 5 of this book. And he, he there links, uh, links them to a number of specific sinful acts like sexual immorality, impurity, greed, um, foolish talking. There's one that hits a little closer home for some of us disobedient, the sons of disobedience, those are the kind of things they do. Satan is there, he's working, he's baiting, he's pushing, he's prompting. And without the power of God in your life, that is what buffeted you around. And Paul says here that we followed our sinful desires. Paul speaks of the lust of the flesh, fleshly desires, and fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind in verse 3. Um, these passions are the ones that are associated in Galatians 5 and elsewhere with sins like anger, sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, jealousy, strife, dissension, drunkenness. These are the, the fleshly desires, the lust of the flesh that, that Paul elaborates on in Galatians 5 before he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He says this is the fruit of our, our fleshly desires. In Romans, Paul tells us the result of such a lifestyle he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So no matter all the amazing things you might try to do as an unsaved person, you still don't have the ability to please God. That's Romans 8.8. 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The prophet Jeremiah put it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's a picture of following our sinful desires before Christ. We can almost think that Paul got carried away here. Was our condition this bad? Is the condition of that unsaved uh, neighbor or friend that seems to be a really nice guy, is it really this bad? Yes, this is the truth. This is God's word. While humans bear the image of God and, and sin has not destroyed the image of God completely, outside of God, we are sinful, we're dirty, we're hopeless, unable to come to God apart from new birth as his children. And our behavior, apart from Christ, is explained by all three of these influences, the world, Satan, and the flesh. They all play a part in the sinful condition of man. And then Paul says here in the second part of verse 3, we were doomed. 
Paul follows all this by saying, we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, the rest of mankind. The disobedient in verse 2 are now children destined for wrath in verse 3. And that word translated wrath here could just as easily be translated punishment. Our spiritual status was hopeless. In chapter 5, verse 6, um, just after listing several acts of sin, uh, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath or punishment of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God is holy and will not sweep sin under the rug. God will act in a righteous manner. Um, we, there, there's no... Don't get the wrong idea about when we read about the wrathful God, the God who punishes sin, sometimes we get a picture in our head of people we think of as wrathful, but usually we're thinking of people who take more unrighteous revenge or outbursts of anger. God, that's not the picture of God, but God is holy. He cannot sweep sin under the rug. He has to deal with it. He will punish sin and sinners it justly, but that doesn't remove the punishment. Hebrews 10.31 is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, Paul lays all this out, and we could almost, we could almost start wallowing in it. Um, the, the hopelessness of, of where we were and the hopelessness of man without God. Paul doesn't emphasize any of this to make us wallow or to doubt our savability but to point out the truth and depth of our need, to emphasize the greatness of the mercy of God's love and God's salvation. If, if you've ever been to um, the Smithsonian in D.C. where they have the Hope Diamond, it's on a black velvet cloth in the display case. And if you were to go to a jeweler or, um, or a diamond dealer even, they almost always display precious gems, especially diamonds, on a black cloth, usually a black velvet cloth. And the Paul, Paul kind of lays out the black cloth here, the, the depth of despair and hopelessness of man outside of Christ. And just like when you have that sparkly diamond set on top of that black cloth, that diamond just seems to radiate because of the contrast to, to the darkness underneath it. Paul's doing the same thing here. He lays out just the, the depth of darkness of us outside of Christ. And then when we see the beauty of the salvation that he starts to show here, it sparkles even more and radiates even more and it contrasts even more. We get an even clearer picture of the beauty of, of God's love, God's mercy, of God's salvation. Paul gives us that diamond of the gospel with two simple words here in verse 4. He lays out all of this about the sinful state of man outside of God, and then he says, but God. In these next verses, you as a Christian get to read your biography. With Christ, we are spiritually alive. So now we have this great contrast to the first three verses. 
We were lifeless, hopeless, under condemnation, but God came to our rescue. Notice how Paul describes the character of God and the work of God in these verses. We have the character of God in, in verses, well, four through seven. We, we just see what prompted God's salvation. It was his mercy, his love, his grace, his kindness. We didn't coax salvation out of God. Notice the descriptions of God's goodness in these verses. Verse 4, God is rich in mercy. Um, God says in Romans, uh, Romans 9, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. He doesn't say, I will show mercy to the one who deserves it. That's not mercy. I will show mercy to the one who asks me enough times for it, to the one who pesters me. No, he shows mercy out of his it flows out of him. It's not something that we draw out of him. It is flowing out of him. The Old Testament describes God as rich in faithful love. You'll see that in Psalm 103. Uh, in Micah 7, the, uh, there's a beautiful description of God as one who delights in faithful love. Rich in faithful love, one who delights in faithful love. In verse 4 here, we see God has shown great love. To the Romans, Paul writes, But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, dead and doomed, Christ died for us. God also highlights, excuse me, Paul also highlights God's grace in these verses, especially notice in verses 5 and 8. Being made alive when we were dead is a work of grace. Believers have experienced the undeserved favor of God. Twelve times grace is mentioned in Ephesians. In chapter 1, Paul says that our salvation was to the praise of God's glorious grace. And Paul, I, I, I almost get the sense of Paul here um, writing under the influence of the Spirit, and yet his human mind and vocabulary, it, it almost feels like he's struggling and reaching for words to explain the majesty of, of what God's revealing to him. He's running into the bounds of human language as he's trying to explain a, a spiritual wealth. And, and he says, the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness. I don't know what you think of when you think of exceeding riches. Um, if you grew up with TV like me, you maybe think of Scrooge McDuck diving into a big swimming pool of gold or, or whatever, but whatever you picture in your head is exceeding riches. You know, the massive mansion on the hill, the, the whatever comes to your mind when you think of exceeding riches, that pales in comparison. That is the, the closest Paul could come with human language to, to explain and, and give a picture of the kindness of God. We'll think about it a little bit more later, but through for all of eternity, we will continue to be the recipients of God's grace and, and in a way, trophies of his grace. But looking at, the, at these verses here some more, uh, verses 5 through 7, we see... Paul talking about the work of God. 
Notice what God did, the action, the work, the, the, the stuff that happened. The work that God did in his mercy, his grace, his love, and his kindness. Paul begins by telling us that God made us alive with Christ in verse 5. Just as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he also said to us, insert your name here, come forth. He said, Lazarus, come forth. That is what he said to you. He said, John, come forth. Crystal, come forth. Wesley, come forth. That is, that is the same power at work. And think of, think of Lazarus' response. Um, he came and, and he rose and rejoiced. Um, that's, that's our response. Like Lazarus, we rise, we rejoice in that love, that mercy, that grace, that power. Strong to save. Never forget, Christianity is not about becoming a nicer person or about starting a new religious routine. It is about becoming a new person. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Christianity is not about becoming a nicer person, about changing your life. It's about a new life. One night, many, many years ago, a religious man named Nicodemus came to ask Jesus some, some hard, deep, spiritual questions. He had a lot of religious knowledge, but he had not been made alive. Jesus told him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3 3. We need to remember that no one is beyond the reach of God's regenerating grace, and no one is beyond the need of God's regenerating grace. There is not a single person on earth beyond the reach or the need of God's grace. I, I always enjoy verse 5 where um, Paul just seems to kind of um, pop up in his chair a little bit and throw in a, per, uh, a parenthesis. You are saved by grace. I mean, he just, he's, he's trying to lay out a, a structured, um, a structured, not argument, but... Um, lesson for these people and he just can't stop from just making it as plain as he can you are saved by grace and then he gets back to his his um it, laying it out in the in the more structured way he is and he he repeats it again in verse 8 you are saved by grace through faith being raised from dead is all of grace it's undeserved there's nothing you did to earn it there's nothing you did to to make yourself worthy of it it is grace and, and all through this book, it just seems like over and over, Paul is, is hammering that point that we dare not forget and become ungrateful for just the great grace of God's work and God's salvation. Notice uh, in verse 5, Paul says, we have been made alive with Christ. That there, there are a number of with. Um, statements in these verses. Paul underscores our union with Christ. Um, in fact, all three of the verbs in here 
have a prefix meaning with. We are alive with Christ. We are raised with Christ. We are seated with Christ. Consider, it's almost staggering to, to try to comprehend the, the nature of God's work in uniting us with Christ. Verse 6, God says, God raised us up with Christ. This is, this is obviously an allusion to the resurrection of Jesus. And, and Paul is using the, a, a compound word to declare that we've been raised together. Um, it's synergirin or something similar to that in, in the Greek, which has the prefix syn, S-Y-N. We know this word uh, possibly from computers. Uh, think of sync, synchronize. So um, I guess these days we don't really sync our phones with our computers so much, but we're, we're syncing our computers with servers and ser um, information on our phones to servers, synchronized syncing. And what we're doing there is the email that's on the server at work is now with my phone. It's synchronized to it. And then, I, of course, I'm a nerd, so I start to get this um, th this really starts to, to take hold in, mine, in my mind, well, then I'm synced with Christ. I have that, that synchronization is happening there. What God did for Christ, he's done for believers. The same power, Paul says, that raised Christ from the dead is the power that ro rose, <laughs> that caused you to rise from the dead. In some astonishing way, when, when Jesus Christ got out of the tomb 2,000 plus years ago, John Perfect came out with him. Now, all right, don't, don't start freaking out. The timeline's a little weird. But, but the very power and action of Christ's resurrection is what connected my new life even though my, my choice and my experience came nearly 3,000 years later, the same power and, and the same action is, is what's at work there. In Colossians 2, verse 12, Paul says that this has already taken place. You were also raised with him. You were also raised with him. That's where my mind just starts to short circuit, and I, 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 can't, I can't gel the fact that my decision to... to um, to hand my life over to Christ came, like I said, nearly 2,000 years after, after the, the act. But then I think, well, God's eternal. I'm not. God's infinite. My mind is very not. And so I will just, I'll just take what Paul says. I was raised with him and celebrate and move on. And Paul says in Colossians 3.1, because you were raised with him, seek what is above. We'll get more into that at the end of this chapter and the end of this section. Next, in verse six, Paul says, God seated us with Christ. And again, we have a, a compound word that has that S-Y-N at the beginning. Um, Synecathesin or something similar to that. I know I'm butchering the pronunciation. In chapter one, Paul praised God for exalting Jesus above all powers and forces. And now he says, we are seated with Jesus. 
there, in this, there is some sense of the position and authority we have over the evil powers then. We are no longer slaves to sin. Um, the, the week is a little bit of a blur. I think it was last night when we talked about not being enslaved, that when we are enslaved to anything other than being a bondservant of Christ, we are no longer bearing the image of God. We're, we're breaking down our ability to represent him when we're enslaved to anything other than God. We are no longer slaves to sin because we sit with Jesus and partake of his victory over sin. Doesn't mean we're divine. That's not what it means when it says we, we uh, are seated with Jesus. There's only one on the throne. But we are seated with him and have power to overcome. We do not have to succumb to the dark world and Satan's schemes. Those, those first few verses where it's laying out you being buff or, or the, the unsaved, sinful man being buffeted around by fleshly desires, by the culture and, and desires of the world and Satan, that does not have to be you because you are seated with Christ. You do not have to succumb to the dark world and Satan's schemes. And note here we have the already but not yet aspect of salvation we are now raised and seated with him but we are awaiting the full uh, if you look at hebrews 10 we have a similar a similar thing of we're still awaiting the the fullness of our salvation but we have been saved Um, and so it's one of those things that can be hard for us to comprehend but the truth of it is we have been saved and yet we we haven't even got to the fullness of it yet we are now raised and seated with him, but we are, we're still awaiting that, that completion in a way. Verse 7, the reason God has showed us such grace is so that we might be the demonstration of his grace forever. God, well, that, that's, what I, that's what I was thinking of when I said earlier, we will be trophies of his grace. God says, in effect, look at what I can do with the broken, and the beauty that can come from it. Not the beauty that can come from it. The beauty I, God, can make from it. And then the last couple verses here, 8, 9, and 10. In Christ, we are God's workmanship. Paul now, he elaborates on God's gracious gift of salvation by inserting... um, that lovely subject, faith and works, into the discussion. Paul first emphasizes how salvation is a gift and then how true salvation brings results in, in a practical way. So in verses 8 and 9, we have just laid out um, in, in full, full spread, salvation is a gift. Paul first highlights God's grace again, for you are saved by grace through faith, This is not of yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Grace captures the mind of Paul in these 10 verses. God's great rescue of us is by his grace. And and think of the great reversal that has happened between verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 7. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We are alive together with Christ. We were sons of disobedience, 
we are raised up with Christ. We were children of wrath. We are seated with Christ, recipients of generous mercy, recipients of great love, recipients of rich grace, recipients of God's kindness, and, and a demonstration, and, or to use that, that word that keeps sticking in my head, trophies, a demonstration of God's grace. Huge contrast. Paul says that grace comes through faith. This is the human response. Belief and trust. In um, chapter 1, verse 13, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The human response to, to God's grace and God's mercy, the response that comes from our end is that, that faith, the belief and the trust. How do, we, how do we appropriate, how do we take in what was just laid out? How do we act on the need we have as sinful man and separated from God? We act in faith. Faith is the instrument by which we lay hold of Christ. The, the whole grammar of... I used to hate language and grammar, and then I married an editor. Um, the grammar of, 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 of all of this indicates that the, the whole of salvation is to be viewed as a gift. Grace is a gift. Even my ability to have faith, even though faith is, is what I'm supposed to be bringing to the table in this relationship, even my ability to have faith is a gift from God. And salvation as a whole is a gift. Do not ever think of salvation as a transaction in which God brings faith, brings grace, and we bring faith, and then, okay, that, that meets the requirements and everything's paid for. It is not a transaction between you and God. The I don't know what word to use, but I know transaction puts us in, in a, bad, a bad position. Don't think of salvation as a transaction where you come and use faith to pay God and then he uses his grace to save you. It is not how it works. It is all grace. It is grace from top to bottom, from side to side. We, another way to think of that is we require God's power and help even for our part of the, the relationship and, and the salvation commitment. Um, an example of that could be when uh, in Acts 18, Luke writes that Apollos helped those who had believed through grace. Um, that's Acts 18, and you also see in Acts 13 and Philippians 1. Because salvation is a, is a divine gift, it can't be earned. Um, that there's, there's, no, there's no amount of effort I can supply or activity or, or religiosity or, or what have you that can earn salvation. We were not saved. We were not saved because we were smarter than others, better looking than others, more gifted than others. We were not saved even because we were more spiritual than others. God showed our, our, our salvation is the work of God. God has shown us astonishing grace. He he put forward his son, Jesus Christ, as the solution. He granted us the faith to believe in the Savior. And then in verse 9 here we have, No one can boast. You and I dare not allow ourselves 
to think highly of ourselves because we are saved. If you look down your nose at the unsaved because I am saved, you, ha- you are letting yourself slide right into these verses of, of a boastful, prideful, puffed up view of yourself. And you have lost the view that God has saved you. And you have, have transitioned to the view of I am saved. That's a subtle distinction, but that is a profound distinction. I am saved is a lot different than God has saved me. Notice the objects. No one can boast. There is only one who should be exalted in this salvation, and that is God. We haven't worked for it, and we cannot therefore brag about ourselves. Uh, look at Romans 4.2 for more on that. Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians 4 when he writes... For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? What if you didn't, now if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And since we've received this salvation also in 1 Corinthians, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And glory there, or glories, he who glories, that word is also translated boasts. Um, If you're going to boast about something, if you're going to glory about something, if you're going to be puffed up about something, be puffed up about God, not about anything else. And then here in verse 10, salvation results in good works, to use a term we're fairly familiar with. After saying that our works cannot save us, Paul notes the importance of what we do and our actions. He doesn't want us to think that works, actions, what we do are unimportant. He states that works simply are not at the root of your salvation. They're the fruit of salvation. They're the other end of the tree. They're not the root, they're the fruit. In uh, John 15, verse 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And in Titus Chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Think of the first three verses of this chapter. And purify for himself his own special people. Think of that middle section. Zealous for good works. Now we're in these last couple verses. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for good works. The reformers used to say it is... Faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. I think that's not a bad way to say it. We are not saved by faith plus works, but by a faith that works. We have a living faith, a functioning faith. Now that we belong to God, God is working on us and in us so that he might work through us. Paul says here in verse 10, we are his workmanship. This word workmanship is only used one other time in the New Testament. In Romans 1.20, it refers to God's material creation, how he created the material world that we live in, he, how, how he created all of creation. That's the other uh, place where the word that's translated workmanship here is used in the New Testament. The heavens and earth display the glory of God's material creation. But this is a new 
creation called saved sinners. They declare the glory of God's spiritual creation. Think about, I love mountains. Um, I, I would, I hope God never calls me to live in Kansas. Um, I love mountains, and think about um, a couple evenings this week, the timing when I would come down here, I would see the, the beauty of a sunset behind the mountain, and, and it's, just, it's just lovely. Um, it's, it's amazing, and think about mountains, or even if, if, you, if you find great beauty in the ocean, or, or whatever natural thing that you find beauty in, and just, just the majesty of creation. You, um, you know, if, if you're standing at uh, a giant waterfall, and, and um, just loving the majesty, and, and how, how that creation just shouts for God, that creation that beautiful mountain or waterfall, no matter how beautiful, how majestic, it shouts to the glory of God, but it cannot shout the gospel. God has given you that job. God has given you the job and opportunity and ability, and you alone, to shout the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ. We see the beauty of God in creation, but he expects us as his new creation to show and speak the glory of the gospel. The heavens and earth display the glory of God's material creation, but the new creation, the new creatures, we declare the glory of God's spiritual creation. Because we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, people should see our lives and our actions and our words and, and just how we, how we live. That's what good works are. Your works are your actions. People should be able to see that and say, there's a work of God. And if they have any doubts, that says something about how serious my faith is. Because God... God has called us to a, a living faith, a functional faith. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And Paul adds to that, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. While our conversion and spiritual growth takes place in Christ Jesus, as we're united to him, we have life, and that life leads to good works. Um, chapters 4 through 6 lay out just more what it looks like, um, especially uh, 4.12. Um, you just no longer walk the way the unredeemed walk in the futility of their mind. You're walking with purpose. You're united to God. Frankly, you simply have a new instinct. You don't, uh, your, your new instinct that comes with your new life is to 
is to do good, to do the will of God at home, at work, and everywhere for the glory of God. And so we made the full loop. We once walked in darkness, being controlled by the world, the flesh, the devil, and working sin. But God made us alive through faith in Christ. And now we are walking in Christ, doing good for him. So, apart from Christ, with Christ, and now in Christ. When I talked to Philip before coming here this week, um, he he didn't really give me much direction about whether um, whether there should be altar calls and things like that. Um, What we looked at this evening is simple truth. And if it doesn't ring true for you, it's not because the truth was wrong. I'm not going to have an altar call here um, this evening. But if if you're... If you are feeling your need and you are sensing your need, you need to talk to God. And there are several of us here that would be happy to talk with you. So I'm going to just say that um, if you have anything you want to talk about, um, Philip's here, I'm here, Ben's here. um, We want to hear from you if you have something to say.